This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 19th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. State lawmakers are trying to assert many of the powers not delegated to the federal government. The so-called tenthers, named for the Tenth Amendment, are getting some traction. The challenges are significant, but the struggle is worthwhile. So says Cato Institute Vice President for Legal Affairs, Roger Pilon. Given what's going on in Washington today, it's not surprising that we're seeing a rebellion in the states and a claim by many state legislatures and governors that this action in Washington, the health care debate being the most prominent example, is in flagrant violation of the Constitution and in particular of the Tenth Amendment's protection of state powers under our federal constitution. Let me just give you a summary of my view on this movement and then discuss more fully the history to show how it is that we got to this state of affairs. In summary, I'm fully sympathetic with this movement, which has been called the Tenthers because of its connection with the Tenth Amendment. Legally, I don't think it's going to go very far, but I still support it because politically, It needs to be said, and because it is being said, it may lead to changes in our political situation such that we have a restraint on the federal government coming from it. And now let me give you a quick history of how we got to this state of affairs. You could start, I suppose, with the Articles of Confederation, which were drafted in 1776 and completed in 1777, and then finally ratified in 1781 during the course of the Revolutionary War. And they created a federal government, but it was a terribly weak federal government. There were two main problems. First of all, the absence of a serious executive that could conduct foreign affairs. Remember, we were surrounded on all sides, the British, the French, the Spanish, powers more powerful than our own. And secondly, under the Articles, states were erecting tariffs and other protectionist measures that were leading to the breakdown of free commerce among the states. And those were the two main reasons that prompted the framers to gather in Philadelphia in 1787 to draft a new constitution to create a more powerful federal government. But there was the tension, of course, between those who wanted a more powerful federal government and those who wanted to retain power in the states. And it led during the convention to the Great Compromise, whereby we had uh, uh, two branches of the legislature, one uh, constituted by the states, with each having two senators, the other constituted by population, the House of Representatives. And this notion of federalism, was central to the Constitution. And the idea was one of dual sovereignty. We would have sovereignty by the federal government and sovereignty by the states. And the aim was to pit power against power so that no one locus of power would become too great. And this was the theory of the matter. And indeed, uh, there was the problem of what do you do when there was a conflict between the two, And so Article 6 addressed that through the Supremacy Clause. If there was a conflict, the federal power would be supreme over the state power. 
Now, we lived under that regime where most power rested with the uh, states right up until the Civil War, and the Tenth Amendment captured it clearly. But you can understand the Tenth Amendment only by first understanding the theory of the Constitution as captured by the doctrine of enumerated powers. They sought to restrain federal power by giving the federal government only certain powers. And you look at Article 1, Section 8, and you see that the federal government has only 18 powers that are enumerated there. The power to tax, the power to borrow, the power to regulate interstate commerce, and so forth. And then the Tenth Amendment says, the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, the Constitution establishes a government of delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. And where there is no federal power, there is by definition either a state power or no power in the government at all, the power resting with individuals. Let's go now to the commerce power, because that is the most important one for the current issues today, because most regulation by the federal government takes place under the commerce power, the power of Congress to regulate interstate commerce. What you've got with the commerce power is a power that can get out of control as it has today. And so you have to understand it as the framers understood it. In the context of states erection, erecting these tariffs and other protectionist measures to uh, protect local merchants and manufacturers from competition from out-of-state merchants and manufacturers. It was because of the breakdown of free trade that the Congress was given the power to regulate or make regular commerce among the states. It wasn't a power to regulate everything and anything under the sun for any purpose whatsoever. It was essentially a power to negate state actions that frustrated free trade and to do those few other things that might be necessary to ensure a free national market. Indeed, in the first great commerce cause case, Gibbons v. Ogden, in 1824, that's exactly how the court read it. That was a case that involved a New York statute that established a monopoly for plying the ferry trade between New York and New Jersey. A, a seat, suit was brought by someone else who wanted to ply that trade, and the court upheld the challenge, saying that federal government, in this case the federal coasting statute, trumped the state monopoly. So that was the original understanding of the commerce power. Now, let's hold that thought because we're going to come back to it. The Civil War amendments followed the Civil War, and they did so in order to, if I may, complete the Constitution because the original Constitution, through its oblique recognition of slavery, made necessary so that there would be union between the states, did not incorporate the Declaration of Independence principle of equality. That was finally incorporated through the Civil War amendments, which provided for the first time federal remedies against state violations of our rights, so that now you could go into court and claim that a state was violating your rights because the Bill of Rights up to this point had applied only against the federal government, not against the states. So now with the passage of the Civil War amendments, following the Civil War, you could go into federal court and claim a right against your state. So it was a fundamental shift in federalism, and it was a fundamental increment 
in federal power over the states, but it was essentially a power simply to negate state actions that violated our rights. So it was perfectly consistent with the original design, save for the fact that now we no longer had slavery and we had protections at the federal level against state violations of our rights. The great change came at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century and the fundamental shift in the climate of ideas, government not as a necessary evil, but as an engine of good, an instrument through which to engage in all kinds of social engineering. And this is the beginning of the modern view of government. But it was not institutionalized until the New Deal. And there... Now we come back to the Commerce Clause. The court in 1937 read the commerce power as being a power of Congress to regulate anything that affected interstate commerce, which of course is virtually anything. And so today we have all kinds of legislation, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, you name it, all passed under the power of commerce of Congress to regulate interstate commerce. And so the question is, is there anything left of the Tenth Amendment and the power of the states? And it turns out that there is very little left. And as a result, you've had this reaction in the states saying, look, this is a fundamental shift in the relationships between the federal government and the states. And this is why we have this Tenth Amendment movement today. It is designed to restore that balance and to check the federal government. But the real heart of the problem is that the federal government today is doing so much that was not authorized, that was never authorized for it to do. That's the core of the problem. And it seems to me that if this Tenther movement succeeds, it will have to go after that. It will have to involve the states and the people saying, we don't want the government to be doing all that it's doing. We want this to be done either at the state level or we want to do it ourselves in the private sector as private citizens. The challenges of states one, giving up a lot of federal money that they may end up having to give up. Those, those things aside, if they are able to credibly uh, assert these rights on behalf of, of state governments, what then? Do these matters go to federal court? Yes, they will go to federal court. And under current law, the states will probably, almost certainly, will lose. Because federal law, since the New Deal Constitutional Revolution has been read to be so broad. Again, what happened in the revolution of 1937-38 was the demise of the centerpiece of the Constitution, the doctrine of enumerated powers, the idea that Congress has only 18 powers. Today, under the Commerce Clause and under the so-called General Welfare Clause, Congress can virtually redistribute and regulate at will. There is the core of the problem. And of course, when they regulate and redistribute at will, they also run over our rights in the process. And so there is the core of the problem. And so the states, uh, when they go into court, will likely lose. But politically, they may start to generate this movement because ultimately it's the people who are going to have to rise up and say to the government, 
We don't want all this government. We'd rather do it ourselves. So politically, this movement should be supported because it will return us to our roots in the Constitution as it was amended by the Civil War Amendments. Roger Pilon is Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute. You can read more on federalism at Cato.org.